Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and today I'll be speaking with Professor Catherine Rogers, the Paul and Marjorie Price Faculty Scholar and Professor of Law at Penn State Law, and the Professor of Ethics, Regulation, and the Rule of Law at Queen Mary University of London. She's also the CEO of Arbitrator Intelligence and one of the foremost scholars on international arbitration and the selection of arbitrators. Uh, good afternoon, Professor Rogers, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. And in uh, the interest of full disclosure, Professor Rogers was one of my professors <laughs> during law school, and I had the sincere pleasure of being her research assistant and working with her on um, several different things. And it is just a thrill to have you on the podcast. Um, and I've been wanting to interview you for so long, and it's just it's so wonderful to have you on. Um, so the first question that I always ask everyone that comes on the podcast is, how did you get started first in law generally, um, but more specifically, how did you get your start in ADR and uh, international arbitration? Well, in law generally, uh, I probably watched too many uh, black and white Perry Mason reruns as a child. So I knew pretty early on that I wanted to go to law school. It was a, a longtime dream of mine, and I ended up having to work my way uh, through college, uh, university. Uh, and uh, when, you, when I was kind of stuck working full time, I ended up getting myself into a paralegal position. So I was actually working in a law firm before I went to law school. And uh, it was uh, a bug that bit. It was fantastic to see these uh, amazing trial attorneys arguing in court. Uh, not quite as good, perhaps, as Perry Mason, but close. Um, and and so that so I went into law school with some background in law uh, that I think was actually very helpful background um, in some of my classes in particular. Uh, and how did I get into international arbitration? Uh, that's a little more accidental. Uh, so I, I graduated from law school. I decided I was going to move to uh, New York from San Francisco, where I grew up and where I went to law school. And I had accepted a position with a law firm that uh, did international litigation, uh, which was very interesting to me because I was interested in all sorts of things international. And before I started the, the, the actual job, I had been sort of backpacking on a post-bar break and I showed up in New York. And they called me before I was supposed to start on a Monday and they asked me, well, you know, we had uh, an associate recently leave uh, our international arbitration practice in Hong Kong. Uh, would you, instead of doing international litigation here in New York, be willing to go do international arbitration in Hong Kong? I thought, wow, that sounds amazing. What is arbitration? <laughs> uh, because I didn't take the class in school. Um, in fact, international arbitration was not a class that was taught in law school at the time. And I really had no idea what it was. Uh, but after some persuasion and a lot of research, I did take you know, this big jump off the edge and I went to go do international arbitration in Hong Kong. And at that time, there wasn't, you know, as there is today, uh, a thriving you know, practice of different branches of law firms with associates, you know, placed uh, abroad from their home base, you know, all over the world. Uh, there were maybe, you know, one or two other associates at other firms uh, outside the United States doing international arbitration. That's how old I am. Yeah. Well, so you got involved not only uh, at the beginning of your career, but when arbitration was just kind of starting to take off and become, you know, the, the hot thing in ADR generally. 
that's really Absolutely. cool. Yeah, it is really, it was really kind of a right time, right place thing. But I will say this, it's not at all unique. Anyone above, I don't know, a certain age, if you ask them how they got into international arbitration, it's always by accident. It's only been at a certain generation where the classes were taught in school, the this mood had taken off, where people actually planned for a career in international arbitration. Yeah. And I, I think that's true with ADR generally. I don't think there's been a single person that I've interviewed that set out to do whatever um, aspect of ADR they are doing now. It always just kind of, you know, happens. So that's, yeah. that's, pretty, that's pretty common, but I think not only... I think you've enjoyed international arbitration, but international arbitration is lucky that you uh, happened <laughs> upon it. I think it brings, I think it's interesting when you have, when you find a field that people didn't aim for, but end up in, because I think it perhaps brings um, a, a wider range of perspectives and probably some added creativity to the field, you know, rather than you have people kind of went to school to become a corporate lawyer who trained as a corporate lawyer, got a job as a corporate lawyer, spent 20 years as a corporate lawyer uh, or a tax lawyer or a, uh, you know, um, securities fraud specialist. Um, so I, th I think it's, it, it, it is unique in that way, but in a healthy, a healthy boost to the, to the practice area, I think. Definitely. And I know you, you know, every aspect of international arbitration in and out, but I think some of your focuses have been in ethics, um, third party funding and the selection of arbitrators. Um, so what did, what is your current focus in terms of research and scholarship? Yeah, so uh, you're right. My kind of passion is ethics. I have to say, though, uh, I teach a class called Ethics and in International Arbitration, and uh, I start the class usually by saying, if I'd seen this on the on a list of offerings, I would have never signed up because it sounds terribly boring. Um, but ethics is actually a way of uh, a lens through which you can look at um, the practices and policies and laws. Uh, and the, uh, that govern the area. And a lot is happening in terms of the evolution of international arbitration in the area of ethics. And that, of course, ties into third-party funding because that, that raises a number of ethics issues, and, and I would relate to that fairness issues. Uh, and then my current project is an article I'm very excited about, even if I haven't had time to finish uh, yet. It's called uh, The Devil's Arbitrator. Oh. And <laughs> and it is it is not a defensive party appointed arbitrators, but instead the affirmative case for them. In other words, if we didn't have them uh, already, we'd need to invent them. Uh, I actually uh, and it ties in with ethics because the biggest concern expressed about party appointed arbitrators is uh, this idea that you know they're biased and unethical, uh, and so. Uh, the, the title is meant to be intentionally provocative. That is, that is one of the snappier uh, large <laughs> article titles that I've heard. So it reminds me of the, the movie. So if they ever um, put on the big screen, maybe you can get Keanu Reeves. And, uh, exactly. Yeah, and that was the whole plan <laughs> was to get Keanu Reeves to play the lead role when they make it into a movie. Yes, it'll be the first large review article ever made into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get my ticket now. Um, okay. But in addition to that research, you're also um, the associate, an associate reporter with the ALI restatement of the law for the U.S. law of international commercial and investor state arbitration, which is a mouthful, but it's a, an extremely um, impressive and um, I believe almost complete um, restatement of the law. Is that right? Yes, I think it's a matter of uh, cleaning up a few of the citations and a final proofreading and then 
it will be out uh, for use. It's already several drafts have already been cited by courts, but and it's been, I dare say, not quite a 20-year project, but uh, no, like a 12-year uh, project. Um, so it's been a long time in the making uh, with three other wonderful arbitrators. Uh, well, some of them serve as arbitrators, excuse me, with reporters. Um, but yes, it's been a long road and we are coming to a close. Well, um, I know everyone, and I'm sure everyone listening knows that restatements of the law are um, incredibly important and influential and for courts and parties. Um, it's what people talk about when they say it's black letter law. So I think um, it's really impressive that you're working on that. And I think it's the first edition. So it's kind of new ground for the ALI. Yeah, so it, it's the first restatement on international arbitration. It's an unusual restatement in some respects, uh, although I, I think its its uniqueness has, has diminished as as other projects like it have taken off in recent years at the ALI. But it was unusual because number one, um, it's international, whereas the American Law Institute and their restatements are generally uh, focused on domestic law, restating domestic law. Um, and it's also unusual because restatements really started as an effort to restate uh, court uh, judicial decisions um, and common law topics, uh, domestic topics, you know, contracts and torts. Um, and this is unusual in the sense that it's driven by a, a treaty, the United Nations Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign arbitral awards uh, or the New York Convention, uh, as well as uh, implicates other conventions like exit convention, uh, and also a, a statute, a robust, um, even if quite antiquated, uh, a statute, the Federal Arbitration Act. And so it's a, a little unusual, not entirely, um, that the ALI would have a restatement of a project um, on a subject whose you know, general framework is established by statute and treaty rather than, for example, more organically through common law. Well, I certainly will look for that and probably get you to autograph it or something when it finally comes <laughs> um, It's a tome. It's a tome. It's very long and very big. I will, I will give a few uh, behind-the-scenes comments about the restatement because so, we're just finishing it, and so I, we have been a little bit reflective. I remember when we first put together our first outline of the project, uh, we, you know, we put together all these, all these great topics and, and it never occurred to us that we would need to have, you know, over 30 definitions, um, because it's almost impossible to write black letter law unless you define a bunch of things like even arbitral award, um, or a term that we think we all know, you know, the meaning of recognition turns out to be incredibly complex and complicated. So we have, you know, dozens of definitions that are part of what helps us uh, manage the, compl the conceptual complexity of a lot of, of aspects of it. Uh, another surprise was we thought, oh, well, we should talk about, you know, the res judicata effect of arbitral awards. Yeah, we probably, maybe, maybe just one section. Um, maybe also we include in that section collateral estoppel. Uh, and now we have, I think, seven sections on uh, the preclusive effect of awards and foreign judgments and the effect of those awards on uh, actions to enforce agreements. And so it, it was amazing to us how some of what we thought were these esoteric or afterthought points became uh, really important to the project and places where I think a lot of important ground is broken. It's really wonderful. And it's great to have that background insight. So we could spend all day talking about your scholarship and your research, but in addition to being a professor and scholar, you're also the 
founder and CEO of Arbitrator Intelligence. And my, my own summary that you're probably going to expand on is it's a kind of a digital aggregator of information about international arbitrators that parties can use to make informed selections about who they're going to appoint um, as their party arbitrator. Um, and I, I'm sorry if I butchered the description, but... No, that was a great description. We should hire you for our marketing. <laughs> so, no, that's, it really captures a lot of it. So, for people who don't know, and I think this problem also exists in domestic arbitration, but much less urgently. When you're trying to... I mean, one of the great things about arbitration from parties' perspective is that you get to pick at least one arbitrator and influence who the chairperson is oftentimes. And that's an incredible power and tool, um, and arguably one of the most important strategic moments in the entire case. And so, of course, you'd want to do your research on that. Um, but the problem is uh, almost all international arbitration is secret. And so the kind of information you want to find out about arbitrators' past track records uh, is all secret. And the only way today people really find this out um, is they send out an email saying, has anyone ever heard of this arbitrator or had a case with them? And the people who respond, you literally pick up the telephone and speak to them essentially off the record. And what we and, and that really limits you. It limits you to your professional network. And it's sort of, this is where it started was, uh, I was writing on fairness in arbitration and the ethics of uh, arbitrators and particularly how do you hold accountable arbitrators for engaging in you know, substandard behavior. Um, and the problem when you have a telephone-based research process is it's incredibly inefficient for the parties. Um, they can only talk to a few people. So what happens is they keep defaulting to the same arbitrators who are really well known. And it's had a number of negative consequences. Number one, there's the problem of repeat appointments, mm -hmm. which both has sort of some ethical connotations. And it's increasingly more recently been seen as a major obstacle to expanding the diversity within international arbitration. Number two, I think it leaving arbitrators unaccountable, one of the major tools for, I would say, informal regulation of various professions, including lawyers and judges, um, is reputational sanctions. You know, part of why we behave is when we can be held accountable for our, through our reputation, we tend to behave more, more cautiously and responsibly. Um, but if everything's secret, and it's unlikely that if you take too long to render an award or if your award is kind of sloppy, you're not going to have any material consequences for that. You know, it might encourage or at least uh, tolerate a lot um, worse behavior. So what we did is we created this platform that literally enables uh, thousands of practitioners around the world, council and parties, to communicate with thousands of other comp uh, parties and council from around the world through this platform that, uh, allows this communication to happen uh, anonymously and uh, confidentially. And not synchronously, though. Uh, they actually submit feedback about arbitrators through something called the Arbitrator Intelligence Questionnaire, which is an anonymous confidential questionnaire. We then analyze that data so we can actually provide pretty sophisticated analytics on arbitrator's track record. And then that, those analytics are available for sale for parties uh, who are searching for arbitrators. From what I've read about arbitrary intelligence and seen, it's really a great way to expand accessibility to this, I guess, pool of knowledge. And like you said, to increase diversity within the profession, which is it's something that should be at front of mind for everyone that's in the practice. Um, so, well, obviously, there's great reason uh, to 
have a program like this in place, um, but what kind of inspired you to become a founder and small business owner and get this uh, get AI off the ground? So I never intended to be a business owner. Um, this actually started uh, out of a, an article I wrote uh, in 2005 called The Vocation of the International Arbitrator, which talked about the need for increased transparency in arbitrator selection and in the pool of arbitrators. And I proposed some innovations in that article, and then I, I started getting serious about it, and I developed a nonprofit. I thought this was going to be a research project uh, and a nonprofit for many years. And then actually just last summer in 2019, uh, I had a cold, sobering talk with someone who told me this is never going to get off the ground uh, unless you uh, privatize it, uh, launch it as a private company and get outside funding for it. We tried to get all sorts of charitable funding, foundation funding, uh, none of it worked. So now uh, we incorporated and we do have outside investors who believe in the project. And and we've had a lot of support actually from Invent Penn State, uh, which is a Penn State affiliated kind of ecosystem that has, that puts you, you know, gives you uh, guidance and advice. We participated in a tech accelerator, a tech incubator they have, and advisors, and they also have put you in touch with some funding sources. So that's really, we had this great help from Indian Penn State to get us off the ground. That's great. Um, so could you tell me a little bit more about how um, Arbitrator Intelligence works for the people who are, I guess, members of it? Um, so what are some of the, like, the benefits uh, and what are the obligations for members and how can people use yeah. the the services of AI. So you can buy our reports just retail off the website, but what we ultimately aim to do and we're well on our way is to get the people who, who ultimately want to buy the reports to join as members and memberships free of cost, but it basically involves a commitment to provide feedback through our AIQ or arbitrary intelligence questionnaire on all the cases that you have. And so the idea of membership is to lock everyone into a sort of virtuous cycle that people who use the reports to select arbitrators submit feedback about the arbitration at the end of the case so that we can kind of keep our data fresh and uh, uh, up to date. Um, so membership, it has, I think, uh, way more benefits and obligations, uh, but you do have to fill out AIQs, which are this uh, detailed questionnaire that requests both factual information about the arbitration um, that allows us to analyze uh, the conduct of the arbitrators and also evaluative information which is usually what parties are kind of looking for when they make those phone calls uh, you know does the uh, did the arbitrator ask good questions during the hearing that's a good question uh, and we also sometimes you can't tell from the facts of a case even if the award were to become public um, how to contextualize or understand what happened. And so we ask some evaluative questions that help people understand um, the individual perspectives of the participants, uh, what their take is on the timing, uh, on the methodological interpretation used. But the key is when they are, are filling out these AIQs, they're not giving us everything they have on the arbitrator. They, law firms still retain a certain insights that we don't even ask about. And they're also not giving anything confidential. We don't ask for the names of the parties. We don't ask for the uh, even the, the countries in which the parties are from. And we don't ask anything that any of our members or supporters consider to be confidential or inappropriate to submit. 
On the other hand, we can we can aggregate from the submissions uh, really rich, interesting uh, reports on arbitrators. So some of our top reports, I think, have upwards of 25 arbitrations, the vast majority of which, or all in some cases, are secret, meaning the awards are not publicly available. Um, but that's what, what membership does, is it allows a sort of continuous flow of feedback. And in exchange for giving that feedback, what we provide members is an upwards of 80% discount on the cost of reports. So the idea is that the people who get the you know, best access to the reports are the people who are primarily supplying the data for the reports. I mean, that sounds like a very, a really valuable resource. Um, and I think it's something that everyone that practices in international arbitration could put to good use. Arbitrator intelligence, I guess by its nature, is kind of forward-looking. It's kind of on the, the cutting edge of um, tech for arbitration and for the selection of arbitrators. But what, what does the future look like for arbitrator intelligence? What are some of the next steps for you? Yeah, so that's really important. I do think uh, in many ways we were an idea before our time, which is why it took me uh, 12 years or so to, to, to get it to where it is. But I do think we're always looking forward. Um, and I think we're pushing boundaries of what had been considered, you know, the delimitation between confidentiality and transparency. Uh, there, it's a huge debate right now in the industry is how do you provide parties with more information that they need and want um, to be able to be strategic actors in you know, managing their cases and in selecting arbitrators while still providing the confidentiality that they also want. And what we do is we were able to get that data out without, you know, leaving, without even seeing ever the arbitral award. I do think, you know, there've been competing, you know, arguments, so should we publish redacted awards, whatnot. Uh, I think that we will um, eventually see that perhaps um, artificial intelligence, real artificial intelligence, not arbitrator intelligence, <laughs> and uh, natural language processing, um, and those, you know, in many ways tried and true forms of uh, existing legal tech can be used to scrape arbitral awards. Um, while leaving them confidential. Um, and I think that, that that will be where there's a really big innovation. Um, and we hope to be uh, kind of at the forefront of that as well. So that's what we're aiming for. Well, and I, that, that would be accessing awards that are uh, currently mostly held with, by arbitrary, arbitral institutions. Right. Um, and that's why we actually have a number of cooperation agreements with arbitral institutions. Um, right now, <clears throat> they send out emails at the end of each case asking people to submit an AIQ and in exchange we give them free access to reports. What will be happening in the future is we will be um, uh, hopefully you know, increasing those, the level of cooperation that will in fact include some tech uh, exchanges as well. Well, I look forward to seeing that, that next innovation from Arbitrator Intelligence. Um, so the next thing I wanna talk about is more grounded in the present, I guess. And unfortunately, the present involves a lot of accommodations for COVID-19 and how it affects you know, really many aspects of our lives. Um, so what impacts have you seen COVID playing in uh, disputes in ADR and I guess particularly the selection and appointment of arbitrators in that process? I mean, that might be where one place where there's a bit of a silver lining um, for COVID generally, in that I think in some ways it actually has been um, good for international arbitration. 
kind of, at, I guess, at a most basic level, uh, you know, there's a, a spike in, in cases. If you think, you know, increased number of cases is a good thing, that's a good thing for you. But it's also, I think, forced what has been, uh, in many ways, a very classic and traditional process, especially the international side, um, to be radically innovative. So international arbitration uh, almost seamlessly really shifted online. Um, and in fact, some courts, uh, even in the domestic context, started looking to ADR, uh, parties and courts in particular, um, because the courts were closed for a while. Um, and also a couple of the positive things I would say byproducts of, of COVID have come out. So number one, when it first happened, there were these big debates. Can you have effective cross-examination of a witness on video? Uh, as it turns out, yes, the answer is. And, uh, and so we see a lot of hearings, including even evidentiary hearings, moving online. That, the positive effect of that is obviously cost for the client, um, not just in the normal way that it's cheaper to get on a video than, than on a plane, um, but also because it really liberates scheduling. So when you have to fly somewhere, you know, it takes a lot more effort to get everyone scheduled to be able to go there together. When it's scheduling a Zoom call, you can, it's much more efficient to schedule it. Um, it's also pushed a number of, I would say, procedural innovations to try and uh, make arbitration you know, more, more efficient. And then the other efficiency that's been really gained is in uh, is, it, is with respect to respect for climate change in that you see a lot more, a lot greener arbitrations happening uh, when they're all electronic. Um, and the other thing, as you ask about arbitrator appointment, I think the other sort of positive effect that uh, the COVID environment has had is in many ways, it's a great equalizer um, in that International arbitration, in addition to its sort of professional and, and uh, procedural side, it's, it's very much a social phenomenon. And it's, an, it's a group that has literally hundreds and hundreds of events around the world. And in fact, I think a lot of us are suffering from not being able to see our, our dear colleagues in, in anything other than a Zoom. But the good news is it's a lot easier for people to sign up a lot more economical for them to sign up for premier content about international arbitration and to create their own content uh, about international arbitration in, in the Zoom environment. And that I think has been really, we're seeing a lot of new faces, um, a lot of creativity, forced creativity. Uh, and that's also, again, the sort of you know, hidden boon um, as a result of COVID. Um, it's it, and I think in that it's so it's shaken up international arbitration in ways that are valuable. Uh, I think also with the with the sort of you might say trends to democratize and and uh, and uh, geographically d diversify uh, international arbitration. You know the 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 less tied to physicality that the practice is, the more you know sort of indirectly feeds those those processes. So. Uh, in, in terms of appointing arbitrators, I guess I would say there are a couple things that have happened. One, you know, when you heard about all the breakdown in supply chains uh, and all these, you know, um, international disputes that essentially rose out of COVID and gave rise to the increase in cases, um, you see a need to appoint, I think, to expand the pool of arbitrators um, and including arbitration of smaller, medium-sized cases, which now can be run more efficiently. And I think that creates opportunities for newer and more diverse arbitrators to be appointed. In addition, I think parties are a little more attent attentive to 
the tech savviness of arbitrators? Is this someone we think can manage um, the the tech environment that is going that the arbitration is going to happen in? And it's it oftentimes can imply uh, generational differences, but not necessarily. Uh, I just heard in a conference the other day that Lord Wolf, uh, who I think is in his late seventies at least. Um, uh, is actually one of the most proficient uh, uh, online technicians uh, in these uh, online arbitrations. Um, but it has, I think, caused some real rethinking about some of the skills that are needed. Um, and whether you are an arbitrator who can inspire confidence, I guess, in an online uh, environment. Those are all really great innovations. And I think everyone during the pandemic has tried to find those silver linings and one of the general upsides is that it really has driven a lot of tech innovations and hopefully we can carry those through and continue to build on them after the pandemic has kind of resolved do you think a lot of these innovations that you talked about are going to carry through and if so do you think they're going to continue to develop after you know covid is over yeah i absolutely think that i mean it's been a huge breakthrough with the idea of of online hearings um, it's funny because not so long ago, I don't know where I'd put it, maybe 20 years ago, it was a huge innovation that everyone didn't, you know, that all the arbitrators didn't have to fly to the seat in order to sign the arbitral award. This idea that you could actually, you know, sort of sign it somewhere else and have it still be quote unquote made in, in the legal seat. Um, and so if you think about where we've come since then, the idea that three arbitrators, you know, would jump on a plane to fly to Singapore just to sign the award, uh, it seems preposterous today. My sense is that some of our in-person activities will, you know, remain, will seem preposterous after the, the pandemic as well. Um, and I, but I don't imagine that everything's going to go completely online. Uh, I think there are a lot of advantages in terms of scheduling and, and costs online, but there are certain, um, there's some very um, strong skeptics about uh, the process of, of adducing evidence, particularly from live witnesses. You know, you can do it reasonably effectively, I think, online uh, during a pandemic, but I don't know that that will survive so well after the pandemic. I do think that, for example, procedural hearings and certain types of hearings, perhaps just you know jurisdictional hearings where it's all legal advocacy as opposed to, to witnesses, you know, might remain more online. I think smaller cases will remain more online. I think it's also you know necessarily going to force arbitrators to think more carefully uh, in scheduling about what can and can't be online and take a more active role in managing costs. Um, which again, I think is a little bit of a, of a silver lining for the pandemic. Absolutely. And I think two things that I have learned from this experience has been, one, you can do so much more, so much more efficiently with uh, technology involved, if you can use it well. Um, but two, it really gives you more of an appreciation for those times that you do have in-person meetings and some of the intangibles that are just more difficult to get out. Um, during a digital meeting. So I think we'll have more digital um, hearings and procedures, but at the same time, I think we're really gonna appreciate more the need for those particular in person and just look forward to seeing each other in person. Yeah, no, we all miss each other. And I will say also, I mean, they're really uh, international, international arbitration community, unlike a lot of other practice areas, 
A is uniquely social, I, I would say, but also um, that's it's it's also a professional tool in a sense. We're an incredibly tight knit community, um, even though we we live all over the world. We're incredibly multicultural. We speak different languages. You know, have radically different backgrounds, and the way that that's all kind of glued together, I think, is through our social interactions. And so I think we need uh, some of those. We'll see how how well and and what some of the you know, larger traditions, how they come out of, on the other side of COVID. But you're absolutely right. There is no replacement for, you know, at least some uh, human contact and in-person experience, whether it's education or, you know, professional community. Uh, I think that the personal connections do end up, you know, being a glue that holds things together. So we will all be happy when the pandemic is over, whatever silver linings there might be. And in the interest of looking forward to writer futures, I guess the last question I have for you, Professor, is what do you see as kind of the next big thing or um, what's on the horizon for arbitration and yeah, I guess arbitrator appointments specifically? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that um, international arbitration has incredible potential, uh, especially in a world where we are seeing um, the breakdown, um, maybe, you know, we'll see in the future if it if trends remain, but of certain international alliances, of certain international institutions, including international courts like the WTO. Um, and international arbitration has a very long, I think, proud tradition of, of introducing innovation uh, in international adjudication. And precisely because it is ad hoc and sort of bottom up instead of top down, um, it's, I think it has a very big role to play in um, solidifying uh, and continuing the tradition of international adjudication, um, and uh, which is, is not a small thing to say in a world that right now we're, we're seeing perhaps a, you know, resurgence of nationalism, you know, some challenges to international institutions. So I think arbitration, you know, my hope for it, I guess, I don't know if I'd call it a prediction, but is that it can expand into other areas to provide rule of law and a chance at dispute resolution for things like climate change, for things like human rights abuses or transnational um, uh, torts or other, other forms of transnational international problems that really need a, a source of of law and the rule of law to come in um, to to make things right. Um, I think arbitration, the arbitration community already spy, aspires for many of those things. So I think it's not necessarily predictive, but hopeful that that will be part of the big uh, big part of the future of international arbitration. As for the future of uh, appointments, uh, I will predict that uh, we're on. We've been on a slow and rocky road towards greater diversity, uh, but I do think that aided by information and uh, technology, as well as more cross-border exchanges, I do think we will see increased appointment, diversity in the appointment of arbitrators, um, which is a really important thing for both, I think, uh, you know, righteous reasons and the inherent good of diversity, uh, but also the general legitimacy of international arbitration. I, I think and hope that's one of the most important developments in, in arbitrator selection and appointment. Um, but I think that they'll, uh, that, that that's a, a kind of an essential one that we need to get done as well. And those are, it's, it's actually inspiring to hear how something 
that many people might think of as procedural, like like international arbitration can um, actually bring about this you know greater international good and um, aid something that is you know, this inherent good like diversity. It's it's refreshing and reassuring to see how something like arbitration can be used to strengthen those things. Um, yeah, arbitration has a long tradition of improvising to international arbitration to to meet the needs of the moment. Um, and I think that, so I see a bright future for it um, post-pandemic. Um, and I probably, you know, like practitioners 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, can't even imagine uh, where in another 50 years we'll be with, with the kind of innovation and potential um, that it has. Well, I, and I'm sure all of our listeners are looking forward to that, that bright future. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great deal of fun. And uh, I appreciate you thinking me for this series and putting together such a thoughtful uh, outline for us to discuss. Well, it was truly my pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And it has just been wonderful to catch up and to talk to you. So thank you so much. And thank you to our <laughs> listeners. And please tune in for our next episode in two weeks.